Hello everyone and welcome to BYOB Podcast. I've Googled it. It's episode 35. Give or take Oof. a couple of bonuses in there as well. And the man oofing like Gary Neville there was Captain Jack Hussey. How are you, sir? <laughs> oh no. Oh, I think they're going to have to have a look at that. Oh. oh. Romero's been a naughty boy there. Oh. Wanyama. Oh. Um, how are you getting on, mate? I, can, I have a question to start you off with. And this is an unbelievably is it, unfair... Is it about my Christmas backdrop? Can I just ask, is it? I can't see that, but I bet it's amazing. It, it, Can you describe amazing. it for people that are on the audio version? There's a little mini Christmas tree to my yeah. left, um, complete with some lights. And to the right, there's a little kind of, you know, like Russian dolls, but they're little Father Christmases. Very nice. And there's some nice wrapped up presents. So. Already wrapped up, or just are they faux wrapped up presents? No, they they are they are real actual wrapped up presents. Are you so. kidding me? It's Charlotte. It's not me. No, oh, thank me, God mate. for that! I was about to yeah. really lash out. <laughs> not me, mate. Not me. Not uh, me. I'm too really old for that. Um, so I have a question for you that mm. I should like us to begin with. Um, okay. It's going to make people feel very uncomfortable, I'm sure, but, but like secondhand discomfort. I would like to know because, well, it's as sordid as you imagine. Um, I texted Jack earlier on today. So one of the one of the films that we're going to be talking about is Saltburn. Um, and one of the things that I basically I asked Jack was like, is there any nookie in it? And he sort of said, <laughs> I can't remember what your exact response is. Like there are, there's kind of nookie or some bits of nookie or something like that anyway i would like to know <clears throat> when that sort of thing happens in the cinema any film or at home on a film that you're watching are you someone that can just sit there very calmly and be like yeah there's just two people going at it on the screen or do you get all awkward and shifty yeah it, def- it definitely makes me feel awkward <laughs> good that, that, that really must be my uh, my English side coming to the fore. <laughs> That's not your RG, is it? You're your RG. No, like, I don't have that big. Get up there, you bastard! No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Can I use that as an aggressive segue for you to tell us a little bit about Saltburn? You can use that as an aggressive segue to talk about Saltburn. Um, I yes, I did finally get round to seeing Saltburn. Um, Emerald Fennel or Fennel. I'm not sure how, how one pronounces it. She is frightfully <laughs> posh. I don't know if you heard her on um, Kermode and Mayo the other day. Um, but don't let that put you off. Um, <laughs> inverse snobbery and all that. Uh, it's Yeah, so it's a, it's, a, it's a follow-up film to obviously her Oscar-winning Promising Young Woman um, and also her star turn on The Crown as Camilla Parker-Bowles. Mm-hmm lest we forget. Um, and Saltburn is, yeah, it's an interesting story. If you've seen the trailer, you'll probably know as much as I did going into this film, which is not a lot, right? You you, you kind of see, all right, well, this is a, you pick up that it's a story about class. It's about rich English people out in some big country manor. And that's kind of what they give you in the, in the, in the trailer. And I would say, what I'm going to do with this is not go too far into it because I think one of the strengths of Saltburn is that you don't really know what's going on at all times and you're not really supposed to know what's going on. And I think that that plays into it for thematic reasons. And I think that just also helps in a 
in a narrative sense um the sense of twists and turns and what have you but i don't even want to say twists and turns because i don't want you to be sat there thinking oh what's this mean what's that is a twist coming yeah it's it's not really like that look uh uh, look uh, a, a brief sort of idea of the film is that you have oliver quick played by gary gary Cool. <laughs> I've got it, mate. This is what a state of this. Right. Played by Barry Keown, right? And I think he said in the interview, I think it was even with Kermode Mary, he said, My name is actually Barry Keogan, but I pronounce it Keown because everyone else pronounces it Keown. So Barry Keown plays Oliver, who is a he's a working class Liverpool lad at Oxford University um he's not settling in very well because basically everyone's really posh he's not feeling particularly confident in himself um for various reasons for class reasons for monetary reasons so on and so forth he's clearly very smart he shows this in his kind of tutorial group um and what what you what you start to see unfold essentially is a friendship that happens by chance um, with one of the the kind of studs on campus, played by Jacob Elordi, um, characters called Felix, who gets a flat tire on his bicycle. Oliver goes to help him. And from this point, they form an unlikely friendship of sorts. Um, and as they get to know one another a bit better, Oliver... Barry Keown's character starts to open up to Felix about his troubled childhood, his kind of dark backstory. Um, and Felix being this very cosseted, very upper middle class, if not upper class, um, I think his father's a sir actually, so he's probably upper class, guy, um, doesn't really know anybody like this. And oh, wow, oh, wow, what a, what a terrible shame. Well, maybe if you don't want to see your awful, terrible family, come and spend the summer with me at my house. Um, Which, when Oliver does rock up, turns out to be this enormous, sprawling country estate, country mansion called Saltburn. Um, And what we see from there is uh, a story where we see it through the eyes of Oliver, um, of him observing what these very, very, very sheltered, very rich, very upper-class people are like, what their lives are like, how they navigate certain situations. Um, As you would imagine, this is a story very much about class, very much about the corrosive and damaging effects of class, about expectation that we not place or have for one another, but we also place and have on ourselves how our class or our perceived sense of where we are in the world shapes and guides our decisions um the way in which we speak and interact with other people it's you know it's it's very very interesting i know that in some quarters the film has kind of drawn a bit of criticism emerald fennel as i spoke about at the top you know very posh herself um for want of a better word Many people questioning, is she the right person to be telling a story about working class people and such? I'll be brutally honest with you. I find that criticism somewhat misplaced. Um, 
I don't like another piece of the criticism I've heard is that the story is almost showing the the upper class people to be some sorts of victims or something like that. I again I personally didn't get that read on the film. Um but I can't really give you much more than that without ruining it. So right. <laughs> what I would say is it's batshit fucking crazy for want of a better word. <laughs> There, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, that may be a bit of a spoiler, but I was not expecting half of the shit I saw in this film. Um, there's some real, it's a real roller coaster. I'm talking people in my screening, bawling with laughter, screaming with revulsion, <laughs> openly shrieking and gasping at places. Some of the most shocking stuff i think i've seen on a cinema screen for a very long time and when i say real? shocking it doesn't necessarily mean gory it doesn't necessarily mean disgusting or anything just narratively speaking some of it is shocking startlingly so wow. and it's, that's so I think that's it's, so I think fun it's, yeah it's that's it it's really really good fun it's I think it's pretty masterfully executed. I mean, is is what you would expect from an Oscar-winning writer. Um, so it, it's it, it it is that. I think if I'm if I'm being brutally honest, be brutal. I think it didn't all entirely land for me. Um, okay. I think like uh, like some of the the the. the some of the narrative decisions, I think, um, especially towards the end, the climax, I, I personally feel like it, it kind of segued into almost being a different type of film in a way. Um, and I also understand the need, as we often speak about studios, external pressure, the creative decisions being taken away from a writer or a director to yeah. give something more clarity to make it more satisfying for an audience. Um so on and so forth that may be a factor here but don't let this end on a on a negative note the film is great i had honestly i had huge reservations going into this film like i said probably if i'm if i'm to examine myself thoroughly my own inverse snobbery because i heard emerald fennel on a podcast speaking very poshly very plummy talking about class and all this and i thought oh yeah what what do you know? What do you know? Um, but, you know, I, you shelve that, sat down. It's really good fun. And I, one thing I will say, um, I, I think I've heard somewhere, and even if I haven't heard somewhere, I would wager that this film, um, like with many of Kubrick's films, actually, um, I think, I can't remember which one of his, I don't, it might be Dr. Strangelove. Um but in this film, I'm pretty sure that all of the lighting is in situ lighting. Um, so there's no external kind of like, you know, redheads or anything like that set up. It's, I think it's all in situ lighting. And the film looks absolutely stunning. The film, almost every single shot is a work of art. It's beautiful. It's so rich and it's such a, it's also shot in, it's not quite four by three, but pretty much a four by three format, which mm. I, again, I'll be honest, when I first started watching it, I found quite jarring because I'm so used to seeing yeah, widescreen in the cinema, but I soon adjusted. Um, and it, it, it's got such a nice, um, the film is set in like the early 2000s. So it, it, it kind of plays into the nostalgia a bit. But yeah, like I say, the colours being being um, 
because it's all in situ lighting. So we're talking like candlelight, we're talking lamps, or we're talking light pouring in through these huge kind of windows in this incredible, like this incredible palatial place that Saltburn is. It adds such a richness to every single shot. And I think she pulls it off absolutely spectacularly. Um, the film is, it's honestly, it's a riot. It's a, the most fun I've had in the cinema in ages. Okay. Uh, definitely, definitely, <clears throat> definitely. Go out and see it in the cinema. Go and see it in the cinema around other people and just lose yourself to the film and everyone else's reactions around you. Like, it's I such good fun. That. Go and see that's it. That's really, it, really, that's a really, really nice, um, that's a really, really nice way to leave the cinema. You know, to leave yeah. the cinema thinking, I've had a blast here and I can yeah. now go and tear it apart from pillar to post with the people that I've seen it with about the bits that they like and the bits that caught caught them or made them laugh for the, or, or the fact that it's wild enough to have kind of been something that you found so bizarre having gone to see so many films this year. You know, that's a really nice thing. I always like, always like going to the cinema and being moved one way or the other. The worst thing that can happen to the cinema is you come out of a film and go, meh, you know? Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, w- one thing I will say is, and it, you know, if anybody does listen to it, and I'm sure most people that listen to this listen to it as well, but if you did listen to her interview with uh, Kermode and Mayo or Simon Mayo in particular, um, you'll never hear the song murder on the dance floor the same way ever again after you've seen this film so i did i don't know if i listen to the whole thing sometimes i skip through the interviews yeah some find sometimes i'm like right i want the film reviews and i don't want to necessarily always listen to the interviews uh even though i do think simon may on the whole is like like he he obviously is a wonderful broadcaster etc and interviews people very very well but one interview he did recently that jarred with me a lot and i know it jarred with you as well was his interview with Joaquin phoenix because i just hard felt part, it? it was yeah it just felt like a really really hard work interview now that was for the film napoleon i forgot have you been seeing me i haven't seen it though no. okay let me whiz you through um because i went to see it on friday night which was last friday so at the time of recording this that's only a few days ago but it'll we'll put this out for you guys on monday so it'll still be very much front and center in the cinemas i imagine lots of showing still going <clears throat> and there is a lot to like in this film i mean it's ridley scott for starters so immediately for me i'm like right okay if ridley's doing it and i didn't realize that he was 86 like my, for some reason in my mind, he's just eternally kind of late fifties, early sixties, <clears throat> still with the energy of a youngish director going to take on the world. And by the looks of things, he's just absolutely cramming every last bit of filmmaking that he can into his life at the moment. He's working on a million projects, which is just incredible. And eighty-six, um, I couldn't yeah. believe it when I heard it. It's horrible, isn't it? Like it's not. He is one of those people that should just remain timeless you know I, I i read today that jennifer aniston was born in 1969 and i almost threw up <laughs> 1969 you know that and very quickly sort of people that were like, i mean we do this conversation all the time but people that we thought were invincible suddenly are starting to age and that is just horrible um but <clears throat> this is 
Lots of people have spoken about the idea of this being incredible that that he managed to get a film about Napoleon made. Um, there is some great performances in there. I mean, Joaquin Phoenix is very fun. Um, you, you really sort of enjoy lots of his dialogue. You really enjoy a lot of the kind of jokes that he he brings to the role. Uh, Vanessa Kirby, I would say, does a, a really good job as Josephine as well. You, you you really do believe in in their relationship and you really do believe in the kind of like lovely dynamic that they have where they probably jostle for position but joust as well in terms of really going at each other and and having these conversations with like pointed barbs within them to try and hurt the other one whilst also sometimes being very very tender as well and so you watch that and you find it really really believable and you think oh that's really really nice and then you have to remind yourself this is a film about napoleon and you're Mm. like hang on i've come to watch napoleon i haven't come to watch this kind of will they won't they love story um and actually i think the film would be far better off if it was called josephine and not napoleon because the focus really is on their relationship and it's not on the massive violence um and countless amount of people that died as a result of his military tactics but also his decision making um <clears throat> sorry, I have to forgive me. A bit of a cough at the moment. Um yeah, and and I think lots of people will have hang-ups with this on the history and the way that it's very choosy with history. It really picks and chooses where it wants to go with the story and what they want to show of Napoleon. And actually, if the film was focusing on Josephine, it might have stood a chance of having that ability to be picky and choosy about where it picks up their relationship and where it drops off their relationship and where it kind of um, is very liberal and very kind to Joaquin Phoenix's Napoleon uh, and where it chooses just to ignore things that he did. And I think if I was French, I would hate this film. I think I would (laughs) watch this and be like, what have you done to one of the most significant characters in French history? I think I'd look at this and feel like it was almost insulting um, because Joaquin Phoenix plays him as someone that is obviously intelligent, but also a bit goofy and silly and <clears throat> a bit of a perv. Um, Sexually inept as well, I've heard. Yeah, the things. yeah and really, like, I mean, the sex scenes, we talked a little bit at the beginning of the pod about this. They, they are, they're like a carry-on film sex scene. They're bizarre, like really he strange. Made, what's he make like a grunting pig noise or something when he says he's when he's up for it? When he's yeah, he's like he, he's sort of like numbing. He goes num 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 when he wants to <laughs> sort of. It, it, it's really butters. Um, and there's some. It, 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 I know why they're included. And sort of spoiler alert. Um, it, there's four or five of them within the film that are just a bit weird. They're just a bit strange and. <clears throat> They feel not only a bit unnecessary, they just feel a bit gratuitous and a bit silly. Um, and the whole film, as I'm sure you know already, was shot really quickly. It was shot in like a couple of months, a little over two months. five days, I think. Which is just ludicrous, really, when you think about it for a film like this. For a film that is going to try and tell the story of someone that is so complex and has such a history and and has 
a million stories to tell to try and weave a thread that can be told over the course of 60 days and that has nothing to do with me saying like well i'm tell ridley scott what to do it's just that the film feels rushed it feels like they're just flying through history and flying through huge events huge battles without really stopping to think about what's going on here like thousands of people are just dying and then we're like on to the next one you know and where i loved gladiator why i think gladiator was so spectacular was because you really felt it in every battle that he went into he came out just a little bit more bruised and a bit more battered and you felt the jeopardy within this. He just sort of was like, right on to the next one. Then another 30,000 people dead. And there was no kind of repercussions for his actions. And there was no uh, feeling for the people that had died. I mean, it, it, the, the the key part of the film was when he chooses to, to go further into Russia after, um, after he's told, listen, it's winter, people are going to freeze to death. And you just don't get the sense that there's enough weight on the decisions that take place within the film. I think the things that will jump out at me, like I said, if you're French, you won't enjoy this. If you are a historian, you won't enjoy it because you feel like there's too much missing. Um, if you were someone that was desperate to see a, a character deep dive into Napoleon, you're not going to enjoy this because it, it is so skims the surface i don't think it gives joaquin phoenix enough is it gonna trouble the oscars no could it have i think it probably could have done if it had been executed better um i think ultimately the fact that it got made the fact that someone has managed to do a film about napoleon is essentially amazing but that is also the same reason that it fails because there is so much to tell and the film doesn't do a great job of telling you everything you need to know and actually has been positioned and marketed in a way that makes you feel like you're going to walk in to see a Napoleonic version of Gladiator and actually you have a fairly kind of, <clears throat> I would say almost comic, quite light, love story at the heart of at the heart of the film um now, so yeah can, can, can i ask you a question then mate because bearing in mind ridley scott has a i think a, a four hour or a four and a half hour director's yes. cut yeah it's going to drop on <clears throat> apple tv a apple tv yeah did you see kingdom of heaven the cinematic cut and then kingdom of heaven the director's no. cut no but i have heard people speaking about this with with, with regard to napoleon yeah, because Kingdom of Heaven was commercially in cinemas and such a total flop, and people said it was a mess all over the shop. I remember watching it in the cinema because I, you know, I loved Gladiator, and I thought, yeah. "Wow, great!" Another <clears throat> kind of big Ridley Scott historical action epic. I remember watching it in the cinema, thinking, "Meh," you know, that it wasn't much good. There wasn't much memorable about it. And then I heard all this stuff about the director's cut and everything. And I, w I watched this many years later. I only got round to watching the director's cut maybe, I would say, it was pre-pandemic, but not long pre-pandemic, maybe 2018, 2017, 2018 sort of time. And I think that comes in about three hours, 45, three and a half hours, three hours, 45 or so. So, so I've heard that this is going to be four and a half. Is that right? Yeah. But, Sorry, but, it, it was brilliant. Like it was brilliant. Right, okay. And it, it, you know, I remember Ridley Scott saying much more, they were never going to let me release this into cinemas, but this is a story I wanted to tell. 
and here it is. And I just wonder if it will be a case of that with Napoleon as well. You know? Yeah, possibly. And and I genuinely, I would be interested to watch that. I would do, that. I'm enough of a neek that I would sit there and do four and a half hours comfortably. Of this James sort of Dwyer on the <clears throat> Empire Film Podcast was like hard pass, not getting anywhere near that. Really. So. Yeah, interesting. What, because he was affected by, because when he watched the film... He, he was, just thought the film was like, nah. not very good. He didn't enjoy it much at all. For, yeah. for many of the reasons that you're saying, actually, just that it, he he felt it was a bit all over the place. But, you know. Uh, no, yeah, yeah. And at the, but what I will say, Christina came away and she did enjoy it. And I think Vanessa Kirby, I, I felt like Vanessa Kirby still got a bit of a way to go in order to hold a, a film I, I thought Mission Impossible was like meh, um, to to go and hold a film, but I actually feel like they could have helped her in this and given her a bit more. They, could, I think they could have given her more to get her teeth stuck into. And like I said, if this film was called Josephine, I think it would have been twice the quality. I think it would have been double the film. They just gave themselves too much to do. I think Napoleon is kind of like you. you, you it's like looking at the sun. You, you shouldn't look at it. It's too bright. It's too much. You know. Is for me. Napoleon should be a like a I don't know I, I think they were saying on Komodo Mayo that at one point there was a, a version of Napoleon that was that was going to be greener that was going to be six films and I feel was, like you well, could and Kubrick <clears throat> tried to that's like one of his he always tried to get it off the ground it's like one of those you know, do Don Quixote type uh, things in in cinema yeah yeah so lots of people it, have tried to tell this story yeah but yeah, I, I I wouldn't if there was if there was a toss up between that and Saltburn. It sounds like Saltburn's your your winner for the weekend um, to go and see. Should we very quickly do some comments? We had some great comments come in yeah, that I'd, I'd really love ones. to just fly through. So firstly, Graham Shanahan said, "Finally got around to listening to the It Follows Pod. Saved it for when I could properly pay attention. Loved it. Great app that one. Uh, five degrees of separation just did me in though. Got to Inception with Joseph Gordon Levitt. Five hundred days of summer and then carried on. Um, yeah, we haven't done a five degrees because it just takes my brain just moves too slowly um for us mm -hmm. to do it on a podcast and it makes for dreadful listening but at some point when we can speed up the process then i absolutely will do one of those again but thanks so much for listening to the it follows one and um we'll put a pin in that for when we can do is it they follow I the, the, so, the yeah. sequel so yeah. yeah um did we get one on the parent trap i think we did yeah, we do. Yeah, we got one from <clears throat> David Fox. I'm just trying to read this now. It's very small. <laughs> screenshot. Um, let me just, sorry, let me just put the size up here a bit. Could that, okay, so that's right. a couple of old old men talking there. Let me just increase the size of this one. Hang on a second. <laughs> While there may have been some... So yeah, David Fox um, 5383, at David Fox 5383. While there may have been some Home Alone nods in this film... The main influence for the pranks are from the 1961 film. Some of the pranks are identical, in fact. That being said, I'm not a purist for the original film. I grew up with it, but I actually think Lindsay Lohan acted better in this version and differentiated the characters and accents better than Hayley Mills. I love so that we found cool. someone that watched that yeah. watched both because we were too lazy to do it. But thanks so much, David. That's awesome. That's that's a really really uh, good little review there. So thanks for sending that in. Um, and a couple of quick ones on Fight Club. Very quickly, you're going to love this, mate. I don't know if you've read these, but if you haven't, don't read them. I'm going to slam them through to you in in kind of like a sending order. Uh, it's a good movie, but severely overrated. Uh, severely overrated from Chris Munch. Um, Force says, how can you rock up to Fight Club and complain? 
complain about it being sad and depressing. That's like putting on Mario and complaining it's too anime. You have based this off of a TikTok, right? It's it's very you know, it's a small it's a small segment. You're gonna bleak. love this. Talk about Is the full it, depth of it. Like, it's not a Marvel movie. Get used to it from three. And yeah, then the you, final if, one. If you listen, no, I don't even like Marvel. These are winding me up, mate. Why are you doing so this? so funny. Then the final <laughs> one from Mr. Blue. Please never review a film again. So that brings us on to this week's film, Die Hard. <laughs> Let's get stuck into it, baby. Well, I, I was going to say, mate, at least I know my dad's listening. So... Uh... <laughs> Brilliant. Um, why'd you pick Die Hard, mate? Uh, pick Die Hard because we were talking about making this switch into the Christmas season. We were thinking, you know, do we need, is, is it a bit too soft to be going into Christmas yet too early on? Do we need to segue a bit more? Have we, you know, started this too? Blah, 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 blah. All these various different co like considerations around it. And I just thought, look, let's go Die Hard. Because not only do we have that epic conversation about is it a Christmas film or not, or is it just set at Christmas time, um, it's also a really bloody good film. Isn't oh, it? isn't it? Isn't it just? And, and it's like, finally it's got getting so much to do Bruce Willis as a as a leading guy as well. You know? Yeah. Yes. Very like, and it is really good, man. I loved watching it back. It was quality. Like it's, it, it, we're going to do the Christmas conversation. We, I have got that in the running order for us to kind of awesome. get stuck into this. Um, and I've got a couple of fairly strong takes on that. But it, regardless of where you sit on it, Christmas or not, what it does have is that kind of um, almost that caller and response feel, doesn't it? Of the uh, the kind of yippee sort of quote ability that the stuff comes on and you know when it's going to happen and you're like, yeah, get him sort of thing. It's really, really nice. It's brilliant. Like it's, it's really good fun, isn't it? Oh, mate, I haven't watched so it for fun. probably two years, I think. So I do watch this fairly regularly around. Christmas do you allow time, yourself a little, a nice little like, oh yeah, go on. We'll have a bit of Die Hard now. Yeah, yeah. And like I said, oh, I nice. I've this love really. that. This is one of those films. I'll tell you what it really reminds me of. It's one of those movies how you've sort of said previously, like about Bond being one of those of your old man, I would very much say like, Oh, is this, it? The, these films, the Arnie films, the sliced alone films, these would generally be the ones when, when I got to about probably 11 or 12, because really like a lot of the violence and stuff in this is pretty tame and it yeah, looks pretty yeah. kind of silly, doesn't <clears throat> it? I think when I got to about 11 or 12, these were the first kind of films where my dad would be like, Come on, son. Let's let's stick on an action film. Do you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, brilliant. It'd be me and him watching like around Christmas time or whatever, or like you know, if my mum was taking my sister out for a swimming lesson, or do you know what I mean? That sort of thing. Dad sticks on a tape, and it's Die Hard, or it's Rambo, or it's Alien, or something like that. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah, man. Always one of those. So that's that's kind of what Die Hard and stuff always uh, always evokes to me as well. Those sort of memories. One for the boys. Yeah, yeah. No, oh, brilliant, brilliant. Right, look. I, it's, as you picked it, I'll um I'll smash it out in sixty seconds. I think you called this "Gone in Sixty Seconds" the other week, and I don't know why we haven't landed on that as just the title of this section. <laughs> well, because we should just uh, plagiarism in it. <laughs> so we'll we'll have to come as some other like 
like a play on words on Gone in 60 Seconds for this section, but uh, so that we don't end up plagiarising what is a solid film. I haven't watched that in years. And he's, he's, no, well, we will talk about this at another time. Nicolas Cage's new film. I'm getting a, uh, I'm getting a, a stop clock up for you now, mate. Fabulous stuff. You ready? How you feeling? Yeah, let's hit it, man. I'm buzzing for this now. I'm, I'm learning to like it. And a three, and a two, and a one. Go. So, John McClane, New York cop, home for Christmas um, via. I would say what is a lot of blokes' sort of worst nightmare, being invited to the missus's Christmas party. Little asterisk, <laughs> I, I, I haven't ever gone to the missus' work Christmas party. 15 but seconds. It, already it's a disaster. Um, he gets in and uh, it goes from bad to worse as as he's sitting there getting changed, freshening up, Hans Gruber and a group of 13 terrorists, I think it's 13 terrorists, come in um, and basically take the, uh, take the entire office workplace hostage. He's the only one that manages to escape the original kind of hostage situation and he has to work through 36 floors to basically get to the point where <clears throat> he can have face to face with Hans Gruber and try and free absolutely everyone he manages to kill the uh, terrorists one by one before coming face to face with Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber Five. and killing him using a bit of Christmas tape and a pistol and freeing his wife oh bang on bang on are the ones back of the Bang net the, so this is this is cool right you even got the, in a little anecdote there about not having to go to the missus's <laughs> yeah. Christmas party so this this I I realised when I was watching this it's one of the oh, I have got it in running order I feel like I'm going to jump massively ahead and actually no it's the first time I'm in the running order which is really really cool I realised when when I was going to be doing the, um, the Gone in 60 Seconds I was like it's actually really nice because the 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 opening shots of the film are massive, right? The whole film is like, okay, he's arriving into LA, this huge area, and anything like city, kind of like anything can happen where dreams are made. And then within like five minutes of the film, the entire world that they've opened up to you, they've just shut it all down, and you're watching. Yeah. All of the fences come down and lock into place. All of the doors get locked, and you're like, okay. This is where the world is for this film. And I know I go on about that a lot on this pod, but I loved that. I was watching, I was like, this is just brilliant. It's so smart because you've immediately created <clears throat> the dynamics within which everything can happen. So then beyond that, all you really have to do as a filmmaker is go, how do we get super creative within this space? You know, I think it's one of the things that happens within the the film The Matrix as well, which is really cool. When you know, when sorry, this is a very neaky reference, but you know, when they're like, "Oh, get out!" They cut the hard line. It's a trap, and they're trapped in a building, and they have to find a way out of the building, and they end up using the main wet wall to sort of climb down. Do you remember <laughs> that bit? And, and yeah. this that in a nutshell was this film, right? It's like, okay, here's our framework. Here's our four walls. Here's our 36 floors. Here's our terrorist. Here's our hero. And here's what he's got to try and do. He's got to try and save his missus and escape the escape the building that's been locked down and also alert the authorities that they're being held hostage as well at the same time. And it's I just it's just magnificent because it's just such a lovely setup. You know, it's literally like someone lays out all of the pieces of the puzzle for you and goes, right, let's watch someone put this together over the course of the next two hours. It's brilliant. And I love that. Well, this is just absolutely brilliant themes there. Like, like you say, it's just so, so clearly and neatly established from the off that the marital problems that the McLeans are facing, um, yeah. 
the fact that, you know, Holly Gennaro, as she is called now in the film, is uh, this high flyer that she's having this amazing career. But still, you know, what motivates him is not only kind of saving the day, but it's also seeming like a double-ard, ruddy, bloody alpha that's yeah. going to kill all these... yeah kill all these bloody terrorists and win his missus back you know it's like you say one for the boys it's that old caveman mentality you yeah, know? yeah but they just nail it so well you know it's and just th- this i'm gonna beat them all and and, and don't you think there's so many th- there's so many of these little like um classic tropes that you get only in these kinds of films um just little things like he has to the guards are on almost like guard duty and they're walking up and down and he has to make sure that <clears throat> he doesn't jump out at the wrong time and that they're, they're, yeah. they're trapped he's trapped using an elevator so i'll have to stand on top of the elevator and then he's crawling through the crawling through the air conditioning yeah, units and to be honest a lot of the stuff that's within this has probably created action tropes i know it has created action tropes for other films as well i mean it's now been ripped off to to high heaven but it it, it what, what's really really cool is that you kind of recognize the beats of the film and you're given that beautiful framework for those beats to exist within which is just fantastic it's such a like it's such a <clears throat> you know like you were saying before it's one of those films that you just sort of put on you one by one you recognize the setup framework that you you recognize the nuts and bolts of the film you recognize the furniture you know and you're like oh yeah of course we're getting into place and then yeah. god i'm go- i'm going to forget the name of the i'm going to forget the name of the character but right at the beginning of the film when he kills the boss mr kagawa is it um i think is the name of her her boss he kills him and then you're like right we're in now we're into now we're into the film you know um and also you you mentioned this in at the beginning you sort of said about the shoddy sort of effects and stuff i watched some brilliant outtakes of one of the henchmen being killed and having to react to a sound of a gunshot and then having the fake blood splatter out from him and it's so funny it's so hilarious watching someone have a <laughs> hear a hear a bang, then like blood spurt out of his face, and then pretend to look shocked and fall over. Like it's so eighties, man. It's just brilliant. So so good. I'll see if I can find you this. Uh, I'll see if I can find you this outtake because it's just it, it's it's so beautifully ludicrous. You know, it's so eighties, early nineties, which is mm. which is just amazing. Um. And also, as a big part of that, we are treated to, like you said, the guy who wants to be the alpha male, he wants to prove to his missus that he's got value. John McClane, who is a magnificent and very unique and original action hero, right? Because we've had, we've had Stallone, we've had Schwarzenegger, who I believe actually was considered for this role. Yeah. Um, and I think Stallone was as well. Really? Oh, I didn't yeah. know that. So, and, and I'm, I'm sure this would have been Jean-Claude Van Damme territory as well. That Probably, kind of, you'd imagine. Steven kind of Seagal, maybe? Steven Seagal, yeah. And, and 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 instead you get Bruce Willis, you know. And I don't know, I, 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 I'm, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I, I, I'm assuming you thought he was the absolute business in this. 
Yeah, I mean, he's he's absolutely brilliant. Like the the character, I think one of the things that's so good about him about the character of uh, John McClane versus, say, like a, a Sly or an Arnie, is it was kind of refreshing to have the action hero that wasn't an absolute beefcake. I mean, yeah, he's, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. got that. Yeah. He he is definitely the rugged New York City cop. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. he's he's you know he's he can clearly handle himself, but he's more the sort of person that you wouldn't want to mess with in a pub. Not not the type of guy that you don't want to be bench pressing next to. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's, it's different. There was a different edge to him that I think, in many ways, made him sort of more believable. Like Definitely. really, the the big sort of muscle men in this are the baddies. And I wonder if that's kind of a little play on things, maybe by yeah, John McTiernan and the director at the time, yeah, potentially. I, I definitely think so. I, I, that was but, supposedly that he wanted someone that felt like a normal guy. Well, this is it. He is that kind of everyman hero because I think that one of the one of the refining features really of John McClane, and it gets the audience really on side, is that he is an everyman. He's not this kind of like proto superhero. The, the likes of Stallone and Schwarzenegger were where, you know, you'd see them walking through the jungle or, you know, walking through the streets of LA, shooting people with reckless abandon and not catching anything themselves. In this, he's bloodied, he's battered, his life's fallen to pieces. He's a smoker, he's gruff, he's brash. He doesn't really have it all together. He's not even like special forces or anything. He's just an NYPD cop that finds himself in this extraordinary situation. He's he's just one step removed from the everyman, from from you or I in that situation. So it's mainly about him relying on his kind of his wits and his his instinct and his intuition a lot of the time, as opposed to these kind of like I say, these special forces skills. And I think that that adds again like a real level of realism to the character versus, like I say, some like Rambo or like Terminator, something like that, you know? Yeah. And so nail on the head there. That is, I, that is so spot on. He, the main things that you get the impression that are important. Basically he wants to stay alive and he wants to try and get back to his wife. Now yeah. you'll remember from when we did Terminator, do you remember Arnold Schwarzenegger was having these competitions with Sylvester Stallone basically <laughs> saying, I need to kill, if he's killed 150, I need to kill 151 people. The idea of this, he only, he kills 10 people in this film, like 10, 10 and I think um, one of them is using that chain thing. One of them, a couple he shoots, he lets pushes old mate down group, the stairs, doesn't he? Yeah, one goes down the stairs, one goes in the elevator shaft, he sort of chokes another one out. Like, it, it, it's not, this is by no means the kind of action hero of the time. And I think... They're kind of grimly believable, aren't they? Yeah, exactly. It kind of, it, 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 I would say this is what Casino Royale was trying to replicate. Mm. You know, that very kind of like gritty, oh Good my show. God, they're actually fighting to the death here. You know, yeah. they're sort of, it's a bloke who's in a, he's in a wife beater and a, a pair of trousers and he's taking his shoes off because he was afraid of flying or whatever. So he's, he's taking his shoes off to kind of like put his feet on the, on the ground again. And then suddenly he's now just a dude without shoes with no tools. And when he manages to get them, it feels, it feels like an upgrade, right? He managed to get a hold of a gun and you're like, right, he's got a hold of a gun. 
You know, now he's going to might be able to use it. Okay, he's managed to get a machine gun, and he's like sort of ne- writes on the Christmas jumper. Now I've got a machine gun. Ho ho ho. Um, but it, there's a there's a kind of dignity about him. You know, you actually feel like this is a guy who has a mission that he's going to go on and try and complete it, not just a guy that's going to just listlessly, aimlessly just wipe out as many people as he can. Um, And I think the thing that helps the audience with that is his weird sort of monologue that he does. You know, he keeps just talking to himself like we all do, you know, when you're kind of like, when you're kind of on your own and you're trying to think of something, you sort of think out loud and he sort of invites the audience in on that journey with him. So you then enjoy it all the more because you're like, oh yeah, I would probably be thinking that. Like, how on earth have I managed to get myself into the, what am I doing here? What am I doing here? Covered in blood, no shoes on, machine gun in hand, trying to make my way down an elevator shaft so I can get down to the bottom floor where I probably won't be able to get out anyway. You know, it it was wicked. And one of the other things that I saw um, was Bruce Willis saying that this, in his career, I didn't know this. Did you know he was a comedian before this? No, I didn't. I had no idea. That was his thing. And and they didn't want to put Bruce Willis, forget, I think it might be Paramount film. Is it a Paramount film? They didn't want to put, or Universal maybe, they didn't want to put Bruce Willis on the uh, cover of the film. Because they he was known at the time for doing romantic comedies, and that's part of the reason why he's so funny that like he lands the lines so well because he was a, just a, a comedian at the time, and um, they didn't oh, want to put funny, him. That's funny, isn't it? Yeah, isn't it amazing? Like they, they didn't want to put him on the the film posters, and so a lot of the artwork didn't have him on because they didn't think he would sell the film. And I didn't think it would it would land with him. Um, and he was paid I, I do, I, five million dollars at the time, which was like a record for anyone to be paid. And people were really? like, "What are you doing?" I think the budget was only like thirty five million, so he was one seventh of the budget or something like that. But for obviously, whoever decided nailed it. Because <clears throat> I really do. I'm just trying to see what was the release date of. Of Die Hard, is it? What well, I'm guessing, 1988. I think 1988. I would say that action films probably did change from this point. You would say it was a bit mm. of a genre defining or genre changing film, right? Like, like we're talking about this more realistic because, and I do keep thinking back to this as as I was watching it. Like the, like I say, the first kill that he gets on screen where he's kind of wrestling with that guy and they just fall down the stairs and then the guy's dead. Yeah, that, yes. That's just so yes. gritty and realistic because how many movies do we see when you see somebody getting smacked over the head with a baseball bat and then they just get up and they've got a bit of blood on them? It's like, no, that would literally kill you. you know? Yeah, <laughs> like, you're dead. There's so many like, of these kind of things in films that filmmakers just are like, yeah, cool, and then he got a bit startled by being yeah, he's slightly know, dazed. stabbed or something. It's like watching WWE, isn't it? Yeah. Um, But then when I kind of, yeah, when I think about, because if I consider where like even say like, you know, John McTiernan's career went after this, he's done the hunt for Hunt for Red October somewhat after that. Then I guess he did The Last Action Hero, which was a parody of action movies, right? Um, And then went on to do Die Hard with a Vengeance. Um, much later on from that, and a few other sort of different things. So I do, I, I don't know. Considering he didn't, he'd done Predator just before Die Hard. It feels like he maybe wanted to change things up a bit. 
and so he, carried on in that, yeah, in so that way. One of the things that he said, he said that he, he he was just, I think you literally said it earlier on, but it was like, he's a normal guy in extraordinary circumstances. That's it. That's that's all. He's not a, he's, he's not a Schwarzenegger. He's not a commander or a Marine coming into this situation. He's just a cop. You know, and and that that's why you believe it so much. And wearing, like said, a, wearing a white tank top, no less, as well. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And I mean, that was that was one of the cool things about it, right? Um, that that outfit of him just kind of it just did a bloody tank top and a pair of trousers, no shoes on, and he's kind of going about the thing is 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 amazing and it's so iconic. But equally, how good does Alan Rickman look in this? I Absolutely it, I, I, brilliant. <laughs> I know. I had, for some reason, it just had never really struck me. The guy looks the freaking business. Like he looks yeah. the absolute business. And isn't he just like the, just an unbelievable bad guy? Like what an amazing baddie. He's just, he's just unbelievable. And again, it's another one of those where you're watching this film being like, what a loss, man. What a loss. Yeah. Like, one unbelievable guy like he's so brilliant and again he like really really Hans Gruber is one of the ultimate villains there's no the thing is there's no he's he's so brilliant in this because like you know with pretty much all movies now they try to insert the comedy moment or the humanizing moment or they try to make the baddie like well there's this bit about the baddie that you kind of like no Hans Gruber is a nasty, horrible piece of shit for the entire movie. Do you know what I mean? Like he's there's there's not a there's not a second of time where he's not just completely nasty and horrible and just has an open contempt for everybody that he's speaking to, even his own men. You know? Like, yeah, man. Is he's it, brilliant. It, it, and Rickman just nails it. Th- there is so many things that I hadn't realized in this um, that he does so well. And I, look, so here's the other thing: he had been he he'd done one film before this, a small part in another film. This is his big break, which I d- didn't realize. He'd been he a stage actor pretty late. Yeah, forty one, I think, when he did this, um, and he was on the stage. So he was a sort of stage actor, but the way that he saunters into this film. Like strutting in in a trench coat with the entire sort of entourage behind him, it's like something out of a like a GQ shoot or or a fashion thing. He just striding in, everyone around him carrying all the stuff, and he's just got his hands in his pockets, just sort of like catwalking in, and he looks at everything. He looks down his nose at everything, in total control of everything. He does everything with this kind of um, with this kind of ease as well. So he's there's some the, in that scene where he's like, Mister Tagi, Mister Tagi won't be joining us for the rest of his life. <laughs> he's just mm. he's eating. He's just like eating a, a a bit of food or whatever from the little snack place that they went past. Shall we, he he just does not care. And I think that's one of the things that he does so beautifully in in everything that you see him in. He seems to carry himself in this way, like everything is beneath him. 
everything is just an inconvenience to him and that he's a much higher mind than the people around him, which is, that is so evident in this film because there's so many characters within it that he feels are just like a him, but just not quite as smart, you know, like the scummy sales guy or the henchman that he's, that he's dealing with as well. Um, and he just manages to kind of like ha- carry himself in this way where you just can't take your eyes off him when he's on the screen. He's unbelievably good. Um, and he, like you said, he's kind of, um, he's kind of from the moment that he's in it, you find yourself just sitting there and thinking, this is so unfair, man. Like that level of talent and that ability to move you in such a way considering it was his first ever film it's just such a such a tragic loss um yeah he he's he seems to be a real like unique everyone i I listened to a lot of stuff about him this week um because i just wanted to kind of remind myself and maybe we can do this in the kind of like mvp section um but it was it, it was really really lovely listening to people talk about him because it does feel as though his on-screen ability really you can really see how it might have like seeped into his his character in real life as well Mm. which is amazing but he's like he's an iconic baddie right there are not many more iconic baddies than this and and the thing was is that he said i I wrote this down somewhere see if i can find it on a note but basically he said that um he was he wasn't uh, a diabolical evil genius he was just a guy who had an objective and was trying to make that objective happen you know so he wasn't this he wasn't out there like some psychopath like i don't know say joker or um like a a, a james bond villain he was just a guy who had an objective that he was trying to make happen because really when they ask him at the end of the film like what were you doing it for he's like no i'm just a really clever guy who's trying to steal a load of money and then cover the, my tracks <laughs> and then everyone will assume i'm dead and that's his entire intention for the whole film which is just amazing like it's such a it's such a simple it's such a simple what would you call it like it's, it's such a simple objective but it works so well and then it provides him so much space to just go and be amazing because you're not and no but i didn't find myself at any point being like well why is he doing that why is he doing that you know it is just that lovely simplicity with him um which allows him to just kind of just carry on as it's so camp as well isn't it it's so yeah. camp the way he's going about it, it it's it's brilliant it's brilliant it's top draw Sorry, I've gone on for a long time there, but I loved I loved Alan Rickman in this. No, it's good, and he is brilliant. And it's him and I, I just I love the moment between him and Ellis when Ellis is really trying to like, hey John, listen to me, you goddamn listen to me, John. You know like, <laughs> how he like will, will shoot Hans those looks like you like it. You know, like he thinks yeah, he's kind of got yeah, this yeah. bond with him and Hans like Rickman the whole time throughout that oh, whole scene. And you came up with this one by yourself. Like, yeah, like I am going to kill the fuck out of you. Like yeah. any now, you know. Like, what actually happens to him in the end? He shoots him, doesn't he? When he's trying to barter with him, when he tells Hans that he's good friends with John. Why is my brain forgotten that? Oh, he just shoots he's on the him. Phone in... with him, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah him. yes, that's it. Yeah, 
yeah, yeah. And he was trying to, he was, but I thought he was going to, I don't know why in my head, I thought he was going to rat him out. And then I forgot it's actually when he looks at the picture that he realizes the folded over yeah. picture, which is pretty cool. Now you mentioned this already, and unless I'm, tell me if I'm moving too fast and line stepping, but you did mention this already, but the, the henchmen are the, are the yeah. kind of like the beefcakes of this one. You know, we do still get our <laughs> late eighties, early nineties, big, do you even lift, bro? Yeah, yeah. And they're kind of, they're always uh, nondescript Northern European. They're like, are they Danish? Are they German? Are they kind of, they've just kind of got that like, you know, like oh, the look, Mighty it's Ducks Ivan Drago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who are uh, from Finland where it's like, they're not quite Russians, but they're a bit Russian-y. So yeah, we can kind exactly. of hate them I couldn't believe it. When they said know? that it was, when they said, oh, they're from like Germany. I was like, get off. You can't be passing that. It was literally. It's one of these like. So... Where can where can people be kind of like radical left wing somewhere <laughs> around Eastern Europe, isn't it? It's, it's that. Like, it's that's just... screamed of that. Uh, did yeah. you know this? Actually, in Germany, they um they changed the dubbing so that they wouldn't be German. <laughs> really? Yeah, they changed it. They just called them European terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be fair, watching watching a lot of Hollywood movies as a German probably isn't a laugh riot. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no. exactly, exactly. <laughs> but it's just so funny that they kind of left them as German in every other territory apart from Germany. Oh, these bloody European terrorists that are nondescript Euro- from anywhere. European terrorists. <laughs> and they were like so clear. Although probably to be fair, watching it, it'd be like, oh God, yeah, those, those bastards from Finland. <laughs> <laughs> Finland dash day maybe a Danish uncle yeah. around. Yeah. So I'm kind of Swedishy, Norwegian, Dane, possibly. I, um uh, can I just say, Ben, referring to your running order here, I love that the top bullet point is unbelievably tight trousers. <laughs> <laughs> What are they it's doing? So true. It's what? like, how can we make them more evil in European tight trousers? Yes. <laughs> it's so mental that they have these henchmen that rock in, right? So they walk in at the beginning and it, it like I said, it's something out of a fashion shoot. And then for some reason, they're all just absolutely jacked. They look like some sort of like weird Conan style metrosexual Swedes yeah. that have just come in with a bunch of machine guns with one guy who's a computer geek <laughs> like it's just so yeah. ridiculous it's brilliant it's br- who, who does that they- brilliant old film trope of just like mashing his fingers onto a keyboard do you know what I mean it's yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, yeah man, I've accessed like, the mainframe and I've I've navigated <laughs> yeah, past exactly. the regulator, you know. <laughs> oh, like, man, it's perfect. And actually, this is another great thing. This is why it was wonderfully 90s. All of the computers. And it it was like, um, it's one of the great, one of the, for me, one of the all-time iconic uses of cinema, um, uh, kind of iconic bits of cinema. In Independence Day, uh, Jeff Goldblum and Will Smith sneak onto an alien vehicle to upload a virus onto their mainframe <laughs> bearing in mind they've come from thousands of light years away yeah. and yet they seem to be all using ms dos as well so how convenient for jeff goldblum to just rock up and i think it even says on the on the screen in front of uh in front of us, uploading virus <laughs> this is 
Come on, guys. This was the same with this. Like all the computers in this were like they looked like the computers you used in year one. You know, like typing in commands on on DOS or whatever it was. It was it was so funny. But the 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 they've come bloody well prepared. Do you know what I mean? Like they've got all these bloody machine guns. They've got rocket launchers. They've got C four. They've got the lot. I mean, and you know. they, and they they also look the biz as well, and they all had character. That was quite. They get it, it, this is the kind of craft of the film. They did actually, they did actually all come w- with something to the film. There was a reason why um, they were kind of. They all then became more wanting, like, oh, I want to get him because he's killed my brother or whatever. Um, <laughs> in in the was, unbelievably I, I, dark trousers. I, 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 I love that <clears throat> point that you you make there about them all having character. There's that brilliant moment when I've just looked it up on IMDb now. The, the character Al Leong who plays Uli. There's a bit when they've all been kind of sent around to look for John McClane, and uh, he's found himself like he's he's camped out, ready to kind of you know engage in this sort of gun battle. And he's actually found himself inside that like candy store the within shop. the foyer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you just see him, he's like, he's, he's looking, he's focused on like his mission. And then suddenly he sees the sweets down there below him and he just like reaches a hand down and <laughs> that's starts going me. for the sweets. That's you know I mean? me. I'm just like, that's just such a nice little sort of touch. That's literally like, because the thing was, is that I, as it sort of glanced past that, I was like, Fuck, you would be a bit peckish by that point, wouldn't you? You've been locked in there for like 10 hours or whatever it is. Or You'd six be a bit hours. tired as well, wouldn't you? Oh, fancy a bit of sugar, actually. A bit, actually, you know. bit of a pick-me-up, surely. That would just get me sort of... That, nice like, crunch it, bar or something. <clears throat> there in yeah, the, exactly. In the it just, that is it's so perfect. Um, I've got another little uh, tidbit for you on this. Now, this is absolutely mental. Uh, go with me on it. It's, it's totally bizarre. One of the the lead henchmen, in fact, I think it is the the lead henchman is who kind of his his brother gets killed and then he's very much thrust into the front and center. Um, his character was called Carl and he was played mm-hmm. by Alexander Gudinov. Now, mm-hmm. do you know anything about this guy? Because I didn't know the first thing about know. him before doing research for this. Now, this is unbelievable trivia. He was a ballet dancer. Like okay. this, he wasn't an actor. He was a ballet dancer um, that was huge in uh, the USSR. So he was Russian um, and he uh, was over in America doing uh, on a, on a, um, I think it was the, the national ballet was doing a visit to, to America and he defected from the USSR and claimed asylum or the equivalent of in America so that he could stay there. Mm. Um, and he was married. And so he kind of essentially just sort of like left his wife to, to, to try and get to America. Then she came over to America um, and then was essentially kind of escorted off the country. So it was escorted off the, basically out of the US and was put on a plane by the equivalent of Russian Secret Service to get her out of the country because they were claiming that they were becoming, um, that they were kind of becoming uh, westernized or were going to become spies for the US. Um, and there's been films made about her escaping from the US to get back to Russia. 
Um, and apparently it's this huge controversy. Um, and he stayed, they divorced, he stayed in America and then went on to star in Die Hard. And you to take one look at him, you'd be like, this is a brick shit house who is going to be a, a henchman in every film ever. Um, but this was his only kind of big one, really. And this was his debut film. And he was this guy in Die Hard. Isn't that incredible? Like, how bizarre mad. is that? Um, and, and then, really sad story, he became became an, an alcoholic and um, kind of just disappeared out of the out of the, the cinema space. But how iconic is he that? Di- he dies. Yeah. Died from alcohol, like complications with alcoholism. Um, Bloody but hell. if you look at, look online, I mean, he doesn't look anything like a ballet dancer. You know, he, like, and I think that was perhaps brute, why, yeah, I think that was perhaps why he sort of was quite well known for it as well. But he, um, yeah, absolutely fascinating. Um, like just amazing. Now this kind of leads me on nicely because I feel like we're suitably warmed up. Mm-hmm. Is this a Christmas film? Now, Charlotte is pretty adamant in saying it's not a Christmas film. Okay. It's just a film set at Christmas, right? And so what I did, first of all, is I, I kind of, I, I considered this and... I disagree. And I'm going to make the case for Die Hard being a Christmas because I, I, I get what she's saying to a degree. I do get it. And I think that one would have to say, you'd imagine there's a certain marketing strategy in place there, releasing a kind of action movie during the holiday season. You separate it instantly from the other action movies we're talking about. You make it kind of individual, comes its own thing. You know that everyone likes getting together and going to the cinema when it's cold outside. Um, so, you know, having that kind of novelty of an action movie set at Christmas, I get it. It maybe is a bit cynical and everything like that. Um, but I think also, you know, I think the fact that you've got kind of like jingle bells type sounds playing throughout the movie, the fact it's all so decorated like that sets it up as a mass massively as a Christmas film. However, there are certain, I would say, certain key thematic reasons as well, not just because of all the bells and whistles, quite literally the bells. Yeah, bit of Ode to Joy playing as well. Movie. Yeah, Ode to Joy playing. I would say one of the strong themes about this of this movie is that familial <clears throat> reconciliation, right? We're talking about that. And that is such a huge theme of Christmas movies, of, yes. yeah. of the season itself. You know families all getting together. You know you're going to be seeing maybe some of the relatives you don't get along with as much, and you're going to try your best to get along with them to do it for the for the family, for the kids, as they say, get to get along for the kids kind of thing. So the fact that you've got John McClane estranged from his family, coming back, the returning father, to reconcile things with his wife, to apologise, to find that redemption, to bring the family, familial unit together for the holidays. I think that is a, that's a, a universal kind of theme that many people can feel throughout Christmas. You do have, obviously, the idea of perseverance and redemption that plays into the nativity story, you know, perseverance of the wise men going to find the baby Jesus, who is one day as legend tells it as the, as the biblical telling tells it is going to die for the redemption of mankind for their sins. So you've kind of, you've got that, that, that theme in there for it. 
you've got the, I would say, <laughs> a bit more tenuously, but the spirit of giving. You've got John McClane <laughs> there risking his, his life to save everybody else. It's that kind of, you know, he is the personification of self-sacrifice, of heroism. Like we, we, we tell people that Christmas is bigger than just us as individuals. It's about everybody. It's about doing something to make the world a better place. John McClane is trying his best to do that. But I guess just, you know, the, the, the really big things here as well is this idea of just of transformation and reflection that it is that time. Christmas is a time for reflection and personal growth. And John McClane throughout this, even if it's in the most ludicrous circumstances, comes to the realisation as he feels that it's coming towards the end, when it's almost like his ode to the world, when he's when he's leaving his message via the via the intercom to to Al, to Sergeant Powell. I should have been there for her. I should have accepted that she'd done great. She'd gotten this good job and I didn't support her. I was a bad husband. I apologize for that. Can you let her know that? But when he's facing up to what he's done, and like I say, it's that, he's always this tough guy all throughout the film, but he lets his guard down. He shows his vulnerability and he 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 he's changed. You know, he's a changed man and that is that self-reflection. Has caused that, and that is that is very prescient of the holidays, you know. So I, I think I think there is enough in here to say that it might not be, it may well not be standard fodder. It may well be yes, a bit of a cheap marketing stunt. Stick a few <coughs> Christmas trees in the background, have a bit of jingle bells music playing, and we can make this a Christmas movie and probably double the box office. Yes, yes, yes. You can say all that. <laughs> However, I feel I've made. An ample a enough very, case to say that this is a Christmas movie. A very well. good case right. for it. Now, I'm going to politely disagree. But... <laughs> You're not allowed. <laughs> but, Stop but, the pop there. <laughs> but what I will do is I will then make a defense of your position as well after I disagree and tell okay. you that it's not my position. So I am with Shah in that I think, <clears throat> basically, in Bruges takes place at christmas right mm -hmm. um but i wouldn't call it a christmas film and die hard takes place at christmas and there's lots of the kind of like i feel like there's i feel there's enough nods that there's a very good argument to be made for it being a christmas film the one thing that it's missing for me is the gut shot you know the the i could give you some examples um uh the what's better a um a a, a a, a smile uh, sorry a lie that draws a smile or a uh, a lie that a, uh, or a truth that draws a frown i think it's miracle on 34th street um or the bit in love actually where emma thompson finds the box and she thinks it's a necklace and it turns out it's a Joni mitchell cd and she realizes that alan rickman's character is, is cheating on her and and you have that moment of just total like oh no like that's so, like you are you want to burst into tears you know before it rises. Whereas with with this, I think it kind of it, it's kind of like it's the action means that you go from kind of okay here's the setup now we, we've got to go big and then we get the payoff at the end. Whereas usually with Christmas films it's like here's the setup now it gets sad. Here it comes back around again. Um, and then I feel like because of that, basically, I'm a bit soppy. I like the Christmas films to be all warm, fuzzy and kind of feel goody. 
Miracle on 34th Street, Love Actually, great examples. Elf, a very good example as well. Um, what are the other ones I love watching? The Santa Claus, Home Alone, you know, that the bit in Home Alone where he goes to church or where he's kind of like praying that his family will return and stuff. Like I, I think I'm not quite there with this being a Christmas film, but I watched an amazing video of John McTiernan the other day explaining why it is a Christmas film. And it very much touches on what you were talking about. So <clears throat> forgive me, this is a little bit wanky, but I do think it, it really kind of lands the point. He said, if you go to the Louvre uh, or you go to an art gallery and look at art from the kind of like 17 and 1800s, um, basically the only people that could get artwork done were people who are incredibly rich. And usually the thing that they would do is they'd say, well, do a portrait of me. And so these unbelievably creative and talented artists would be sat there doing the most boring thing they could possibly do and just painting mm. a very, very rich person. So what they used to do was they used to insert all around the kind of like kings, queens or noble people, whatever, these fascinating things that they just inserted because they wanted to. And so the real art in the portraits would be the things around the individual. So the individual would be sitting there, but there would be things within the picture that they would hide for you to find. And the real story would be hidden in the picture, not the focus of the picture. The real story would be all around or, or in their possessions that they've placed next to them. And they would actually be telling a story that you couldn't see. And so he felt that th this was a, when he got the script, this was a terrorist film and he didn't want to make just a terrorist film. He wanted to make a film about a working class guy who wanted to fix things with his family. And so when you look at the film, he said, in every shot, look at what he tried to do with every shot. He tried to insert Christmas into as much of the, the framework around the kind of stuff that was put in front of your face. So in front of you is like, ah, oh, baddie, terrorist. Um, but all around that is really the story that's going on in the meantime. And he said that the the obvious answer is that it's a terrorist film, but the film's heart is that it's a Christmas film because it is, like you said, that story of redemption and a guy getting back to his family and bringing his family back together. Um, and he said this really lovely thing that I, I wrote down because I just thought it was, it was fascinating. He said um, that basically th the film is set in the heart of capitalism right it, it, there, there was a reason that he wanted it to be in la he wanted it to be these lefty terrorists in the heart of capitalism taking it down from the inside of the building but he mm. said that authoritarians are low status angry men that have said if you give us power we'll make sure that nobody takes your stuff and that is the essence of authoritarianism. Their obsession with guns and boots and squad cars are meant to scare us so that we shut up and continue to build their future. And so in front of you in the film is guns and squad cars and boots and terrorists. 
and hidden all around the stuff that's obvious and in your face is the spirit of Christmas, which is why it is a Christmas film, which I think is absolutely amazing. And I had no idea about that. I don't know if, if you did. I didn't, but that's awesome. And it makes you <clears throat> wrong, mate. <laughs> it's, it's a Christmas film. Christmas yeah, film. And so it, there you go. When, I, when <laughs> I heard him, I was just like, God, I feel like such a moron. <laughs> I feel such a like, feel like such a soppy bollocks that just basically wants to watch what is it? What's uh, the Tim Allen in the Santa Claus get fat and go on the treadmill yeah, yeah. and keep trying to burn off all the mince pies and then just get fatter and fatter and fatter. But um, but mate, it, it was brilliant. It, it just was. It's so cool and such a clever. It's such a clever thing and such a clever device that he would have been sat there following the um, following the kind of. Uh, you'd imagine what the film execs have told him, like, you will do this, you will do that, and we'll say, yeah, yeah, we can do it as a Christmas film, blah, blah, blah. And he would have been taking the piss out of the studios every step of the way without them ever realising it, whilst also making a really successful film, which is super, super cool. And and he got his own way with, like, the fact that he had a, a, a normal guy at the heart of it. You know, he got Bruce Willis at the heart of it, which is which is really, really cool. Um, How have we gotten through this whole podcast without saying yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker? I know, I know, man. It's, uh, there's so many of those, isn't there? What a lie. There's, like, so many of those quotes. Like, it, he's just brilliant. And they're like, now I have a machine gun. I mean, it's so cool. Did you ever play the Die Hard game on PlayStation? Shut up. There was a Die Hard game. Mate, it was like it was all of the diehard films. It was it was honestly it was like four three or four different no, I think it was like three different games in one. In that one was like a third person kind of shooter, and that was Die Hard One, I believe. And then there was Die Hard Two, which was one of those just games where you moved like the aim, like the scope around on the screen, and you're on sort of like rails oh yeah you know yeah, I mean. yeah 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 and yeah. then i, I want to say the third one was based on die hard with a vengeance when you're driving around in it i think and you're trying to defuse bombs all around but i don't know it was great it's fantastic mate game. that is so sick it was give fun. that a look after this god that's was, so I cool mean, you'll probably oh, look at it man. now and it'll be all like big square people do you know what i mean yeah but, yeah. but i love that man i love that that's we'll, we'll have to do that at the top of an episode one day talking about the idea of going to arcades in the 90s and like, actually wasting time and money and still having the the absolute best best time ever um uh shall we get into our mvps because there's there's two here and i don't know if i can split them Go on then. So, I like whilst I realise there's like lots of other people in it. I, Alan Rickman and Bruce Willis both like hold very special sort of places for me. Alan Rickman because I just think he's the loveliest sort of, just a, a lovely man, a lovely actor. It, it, it's so perfectly. British as well you know in the in the way that he sort of quite you can tell that his sense of humor is fundamentally a British sense of humor and then on mm. the flip side you've got Bruce Willis who's now at the age of 68 going through <clears throat> horrible experience of, of dementia and, and all of the people around him I watched a video of him the other day uh, I think it was his 
want to say it was his daughter uploaded it and she's just holding his hand and he looks a little bit more fragile than he did. Um, and yeah, the age of 68, I think, I don't know, I, I'm perhaps I'm sure there will be people listening that have been affected by dementia, but um, just it made me, uh, it made me immediately just sort of want to just send so much love and 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 just positive energy to people that are experiencing that watching someone that you bruce willis in this is the man he's he's like you said he's he's double hard alpha male funny he's everything that i imagine most blokes at that time would have wanted to be in 1988 and it's so cruel and it's so unfair at the age of 68 he's going through what he's going through and his family are going through what they're going through and so for me um i mean i i forget alan rickman i think he was i don't know what his what what age he passed away but i imagine it was kind of 60 um yeah he, he died age 60 70 i think he died so it's it, like both of them just it's such a yeah it's tragic and it's it's awful and they're both such unbelievably talented people so for me i am going a dead heat and a dead tie on uh on this for mvp what about you mate well i think it's, it's the thing it's so good about this in terms of like the writing is it really in a, in every great story you know the the protagonist and the antagonist they almost are one character you know it's it's almost like you know the joker sort of says to the batman like you complete me it's yeah yeah they are that's that perfect yin and yang and that's just what makes this movie so good that you have these two guys sparring with one another who barely have any time on screen with one another that's the crazy thing about it yet you feel it almost like every single blow back and forwards between the pair of them is brilliant and it's so well written and it's so well poised and i know people will be listening to this and god i just talking about die hard like a sort of naff kind of action movie from the 80s but i do think <laughs> with with this there's a reason why this movie endures right yes, compared to because yeah. this is a, this is coming from a period when there were so many action movies so many of them and die hard still has had such a cultural impact and it's so brilliant like i watched this on disney plus um and i'm i'm fairly certain it's been remastered digitally remastered yeah it still looks brilliant and it did make me think because producer purdy he said it was the first time he watched it and he absolutely loved it and he's he is the most cynical <laughs> i hate the thing that you love you old person gen z yeah. that everybody Everybody our age and older than us especially reads about and gets all scared. They they don't spare our feelings and they tell us things that we love are crap. He loved this. He said it was great. And it did make me think, how long do movies like this have a shelf life for? Because I even remember, right, growing up in like, you know, the 90s, when you'd see the old kind of 70s cop shows and stuff come on or the old cop movies and things, most of them, even then looked so dated and so kind of crap, you know? There are still some fantastic ones, still some great 70s movies. But somehow this doesn't feel like that, does it? 
It doesn't. And it makes me wonder, is this the type of thing that still in 20 years time, young people are going to be, even if it is semi-ironically, watching Die Hard around Christmas so, time? I hope so, man. I hope you know? so. I really do. Because I think it is, I think it is, it, it is exactly the sort of thing that we need to keep hold of. You know, you need to keep recircing it. Die Hard needs to be, even though I don't agree that it's a Christmas film, it is like, it's your, I think it's essential extra reading. I think it's your homework, you know, that young people yeah. should have to do. Like but, but, it, but, at Christmas time, it should be included in the, it should be included in the syllabus. Yeah, because I do feel like anyone in their 30s, this is still, this is before our time, really. We are still riding the, I would say, the cultural coattails of this, and we all love yeah. it still. And yeah, yeah it's partly, no. like I say, probably because of those memories of watching it with parents or watching it as one of maybe the first sort of action films we watched when we hit a certain age and things like that so we're, we're kind of there but we weren't there when the full cultural impact of this one landed and you know it was it was it was a big box office success it was a big film you know it was a huge yeah. film um that none of us were really there for or there or about for so it's you know it, uh, to, to ask if it still has a legacy well here we are we're talking about it now and you know we're doing a podcast about it so Maybe it will endure, you know? Yeah, fingers crossed someone is doing this in 20 years' time and still talking about Die Hard because it's, it's magic. Um, any bits on the fine wine or war crime section that we need to jump out? It feels almost wrong to be war criming it, it, stuff within this. But um, did you have anything? Um, I don't, I don't really know. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of funny, isn't it? I guess, um, we would say we've sort of, we've spoken about the sort of the mystical N word trope that's used. Again, it's potentially, potentially with Sergeant Alpal, who, yeah. you know, is there with his Twinkies in the car and everything. But I feel like I'm not sure if it fully does apply to him because I think he has his own character arc. He's not just there. I mean, yes, he inevitably he is supporting like the main white leading character. However, he does have his own agency and he does have his own story to tell. He's not just a guy that's there, you know. And we do see and his arc plays, at the end, you know. Precisely, sort of. yeah. And it does play into it and it plays an important part. Um so I think, yeah, you know, there might be a wisp of that with that, but I think that would be like really Really it's reaching, isn't it? it? Yeah, and the same with yeah. Argyle, right? The guy in the limo is a little yeah. like you, you. You probably sort of you, you might argue that he needs actually a little bit more to his character. Um, He's and a bit maybe of a stereotype, isn't he? Kind of yeah. chirps in the girl on the phone, sort of being yeah. a bit cheeky with the with the clientele sort of thing. But you know, at the same time, maybe it's just bringing a bit of life to the character. But I know what you mean. When you look at it through twenty twenty three eyes, you're like, would we still yeah, write a character that way? I don't probably know. Probably not. You know. But on the whole, I think like the way, like we said, this is predominantly fine wine. This is three dimensional character that's not just blowing people's heads off. You know, gave you a reason to root for him totally accessible felt raw and gritty and real um 
and I yeah, I think this is a this is one I will that I'm uh, next next Christmas I'll get this back out again, and um, fingers crossed it's still on Disney and we can we can do, sort of do a little bit of a throwback. Um, what, one yeah, thing I what, did want to say quickly that I liked that it played with was the um was the idea that you know I think it played on the idea that like you were talking about it being in the heart of capitalism the movie that the movie does play with that American because so many of these action movies are so often a vessel for mainly conservative propaganda right we, we were kind of joking at the start about them being nondescript Eastern Europeans so they could be yeah communists they could be lefties that type of thing what i really like with this film is i think it does skewer that a bit because the characters themselves are quite consciously playing this left-wing terrorist trope within the film consciously because they know that's what will get the fbi's backup that's what will get the police's backup and everything when really they're just bank robbers like they just yeah. want to, they just want to rob from yeah. the vault. So their their kind of thing is like, what is really gonna scare Americans? I know. Let's just say we're left wing. You know, and it's yeah. kind of like <laughs> I think it's a very knowing nod from the filmmakers. And I I thought that was quite a cheeky. Oh funny yeah, particularly the line kind of you asked in. for a miracle. I give you the FBI. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Very, 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 good. Nice. very, very good. Very nice. Very good. Um, do you want to hit me with the ratings, mate? What have we got? Let's hit you with the ratings. So, wow, IMDb eight point two on IMDb. Wow. Usually, I mean, that's usually, good for IMDb, yeah, right? Yeah, very good. Let's have a look. Die Hard on Rotten Tomatoes, ninety-four percent certified fresh, and that's ninety-four percent from both the critics and from the audience. Oh um, wow! So this is one of this is up there, isn't it? This is looking yeah, this is looking clean, definitely. sweet territory. This is, this is one of the best. This is one of the best we've done. Hundred um, percent. Die Hard on Metacritic. Again, Metacritic doing its thing. 72% on Metacritic. Metacritic got a Metacritic. It's so mad, isn't it? And 5.6 from the audience score on Metacritic. So um, The Guardian's Peter Bradshaw says, only the hardest of hearts could fail to enjoy the great 80s action classic re-released for its 30th anniversary, blah, 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 blah. I don't know when he wrote that. I don't know when the 30th anniversary was. I guess 2018. There you go. Um, so Peter Bradshaw gave that 10 out of 10. Um, who else do we have? The Washington Post says, a logistical wonder, a marvel of engineering, and relentlessly, mercilessly thrilling. Um, they also said, a firepowered, blood-drenched action picture that doesn't let up. New York Times has to be the most excessive film around. It piles every known element of the action genre onto the flimsy storyline. God, do you know? I don't no. think that takes age very well in the New York Times. I don't think that's aged no, very well. But yeah, thank you. a great movie. Really good fun to watch that back. Um, loved it, mate. Great choice, mate. Yeah, absolutely. What are you it, giving right. it? What are you giving uh, it? Mate, that's, this is a five answer? popcorns for me. Five popcorns. Five because popcorns. I just, oh, yeah. No I just decimals. sat there and... No, no decimal points in this. It's, it's no mm-hmm. no nonsense. And it's... I would watch it in the cinema again. I would watch it on... Oh, I'd love like, to I would see it in the cinema. quite happily go and do a rewatch. Actually. You know, go on those... You know how we went to Poles de Lacey? Like, if they were doing a Christmas version of that and someone said, go and watch Die Hard in a heartbeat. You know, I'd love it. Absolutely. Love it. What about you? Oh yeah, yeah. Five out of five. Love it. It's really good fun. 
Um, so I have a question then. Like, are we? Are we? Uh, am I choosing a Christmas film for next week? Yeah, go on, mate. Go on. Let's. We'll bring it down. It seems wrong to be doing the intense music on a Christmas film. I'm quite excited about this, though. Given that, give it. Given that, what, it what is... you're going to pull out of your sack? <laughs> oh, that's a big black lump or something. Um, let's uh, let's go then. Twenty years on, um, and given that I said I wanted to be total soppy bollocks, uh, it's. A film also starring Alan Rickman is starring a load of the best of British uh, of kind of all time. We've got Hugh Grant in there. We've got Rowan Atkinson in there. We've got <clears throat> Emma Thompson in there. Colin Firth in there. Um, so uh, I think I know where this is going. Joy, directed by Richard Curtis. We're going to do Love Actually. Mate, this is going to be about 10 minutes of movie and about an hour and a half of fine wine walker, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> very, very good point. I look quite uh, pretty. Um, well, uh, we, we shall leave it there and we'll, I'll get ready for the fine wine of Warcraft section. They're all of me. <laughs> <laughs> that is totally mend. I, I won't do it now. I can't wait for next week. But um, yeah. Make sure at BYOB Pod you get in touch. Let us know if we've missed anything on Fight Club. Um, make sure you follow. Make sure you subscribe. Some people are leaving some lovely reviews, so do please leave your reviews. We, we read every one, and we'll try and get back to as many as possible. Um, and yeah, hit us up on uh, hit us up on whatever social platform you use, and we'll see you all next time. Yippee ki yay, motherfuckers! <laughs>